Wonderful. Thank you, Luke. Luke stole my line. Dan is preaching. Uh, <laughs> um, every time we have somebody that's not an elder preaching, we just love to introduce them. So, Dan, why don't you come up? I'm going to pray for you, um, and then we'll let you loose. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you for Dan. Lord, thank you, um, Lord, for the gifts that you've given him. Um, Lord, and thank you, Lord, that, um, Lord, you continue to use him mightily. And Lord, we just pray that you would uh, speak through him. Lord, we pray that the words he speaks would be your words to us, Lord. And we pray that, um, Lord, you would give us ears to hear what you're saying. That, Lord, that you would uh, speak directly into our lives, into our hearts, into our situations. And, Lord, through your word, you would transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 How's everyone doing? Doing great? Good stuff. So we are in our final uh, week in our consistent series this week. So, um, okay, no whoops. Was that because you're bored of it now and want to move on? Have you guys been enjoying it? Yeah. Yeah? Have you found it useful? Yeah, found it useful in your kind of day-to-day walk with God, uh, which is really the idea behind the series, is to choose a relatively kind of normal title to show that a lot of growing as a Christian comes from consistently consistently doing the same things. So kind of building what you might call habits into our lives that help us to grow in particular areas. And so we looked at being consistent in thanksgiving. We've looked at being consistent in generosity. We looked at last week, Frank did, apparently I need to listen to the sermon because I heard he did an amazing job at uh, being consistent in the word. And then this week we are finishing on consistent in joy, which is a great way to finish. Um, Just, yeah, so I I think it's a really great way of of finishing a series, and it's intentional. We didn't just kind of randomly put this one last, because what I I believe and what I'm pretty convinced of from the Bible is that as we are consistent in those other areas, and actually as you grow in your knowledge of God and grow in your walk with God, joy becomes something that marks you out more and more. And actually, if we're going to make something our aim in life... Being joyful in God is probably the best thing to aim for because as we'll see, if you're joyful in God, you will ultimately glorify him much more than if you're not joyful. So it's intentionally last to kind of finish with a hopefully a bang. Um, and um, so that's, that's where we're going today. But every week what we've been uh, doing is interviewing someone um, about that particular area and just kind of asking them what they've done in their lives that has helped them grow in that particular area. And I'm looking around just to double check. that There she is. Brilliant. We are going to interview Vanessa today. So please give her a massive round of applause. I think they're excited. Very nice. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> thanks, for, uh, thanks for this, Vanessa. It's, it's, um, so I think for, for those of you who um, don't know Vanessa, Vanessa's been around at Rev for how many years now? Seven or eight. Seven or eight. And you, I've stopped counting. You came to Rev through I came cap, as a cat client. I was the first cat client. <laughs> <laughs> I was the easy one, apparently. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it's been amazing having you with us and seeing you kind of go from not knowing Jesus to knowing Jesus and now just Mm. kind of being fully part of us and a real uh, amazing blessing to have with us. Um, So I'm going to ask you a few questions. Um, And so the first of those is, how have you found coming to know Jesus um, and walking with him has affected your joy and your happiness in in your life? So um, being able to give things to God... So all my worries, problems and issues, you know, all those things that weigh you down means that I can walk with a lighter step. Um, 
so many things are out of my control. I can't do anything about them, but you still worry about them. Um, but there's no point worrying when you've got God because, you know, he knows what he's doing. Um, and so, yeah, I just offer all my worries, every single one of them, up to him. And, and sometimes I forget, and then I go, oh, as I'm walking down the street, God. Um, um, a real example of this is when I was in legal proceedings to get my grandson, John, who's in there, you all see him, plays football, um, get him out of foster care um, and to be with me. It was a really hard time for me. I spent a lot of time shouting at God. I was a really new Christian at the time. I'd been here about a year. And I spent all my time just really screaming at God, going, what is going on? Why are you doing this? How dare you take him away from me? Um, I had loads of help from Rev. Um, People came with me to meetings. People were praying. uh, People were really looking after me through all of that. It was amazing. I even had a Christian barrister which was just incredible that that had happened. Um, So the night before the final hearing, I was babysitting for the Listons. Um, They were moving. They had to leave their house that weekend, but they didn't actually have anywhere to go. They were just living. All these boxes were all piled up. And I just said to Davina as I left, so where are you going? And she said, God knows. And, you know, that's something I've said many times over the years without really realising the full weight of those two words god knows um and as i walked home i just really realized that as long as i'd done my best um there was nothing more i could do it was totally up to god i'm sorry i've got real goosebumps as i'm telling you this (laughs) um yeah so it was just totally up to god and um just to say that the next day i went to court everything just turned round completely and I came away from court that day as the guardian of John wow. <laughs> amazing so obviously incredible visible joy obviously there yeah. and we got to all celebrate with that a few years ago yes. so that was that was amazing um obviously in life there will be obstacles to to joy what have you found um have generally been the obstacles to joy in your life and how have you ended up finding ways to deal with that So obstacles, commuters, the weather, the tourists who stop at the top of the escalators. They were the first obstacles I thought of. But no, really, the obstacle is me. Um, I put a lot of pressure on myself to conform to society, to be a super mum, to have it all, um, to appear together. Um, And I don't have to do that. I um, I can totally be myself and be authentic, be who... I am in God's eyes. Um, following Jesus means I don't have to follow the rules that society thinks I should. Um, I can be a child of Christ, and I am a child of Christ. Um, and that means I can tell people that I think their conversation is inappropriate or their language makes me uncomfortable. Um, and I do that nearly every day at university. Do you think you should really be talking like that? Um, to complete strangers in the lift. <laughs> Um, But, you know, I'm at an age where I can get away with it. (laughs) Um, My goal in life now is to please him, with a capital H, God, and not to please people. I'm a great people pleaser. Um, But I I just have to keep reminding myself of that every day, that my goal is to please him. Amazing. And um, 
So maybe just um, what would be great is if you could just finish with a, a few kind of quickly, a few habits that you've found have become part of your life that help you really become happy in God's and joyful. So um, it's remembering to be thankful. It's remembering every day to thank Jesus and not just to pray when I'm desperate back in those days when I would be screaming at God saying what's going on um so every day when I go to bed at night the last thing I do is I thank Jesus for my day it's as simple as that I just say thank you for my day you know whether it was a good day or a bad day I thank him um and when I wake up in the morning I thank him for my um renewed feeling of grace I very rarely wake up without feeling fully full of grace um And I take time. I do things like I'll look at John in bed at night when he's asleep and not moving anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And he's beautiful when he's asleep. He's, um, yeah, and I thank God for making us in his image. Um, You know, and um, I thank God that I have John and that he gives me so much joy and pleasure. I'm so thankful that God gave me that chance. Um, and even when I'm just walking around, I see the stars in the sky. When I go out of London, because you can't see stars in London, but when you go out of London and you look up and all the stars are there, and I remember that God made them, you know, that is just an incredible opportunity to experience joy. I see the sunsets. Kentish Town sunsets are renowned. They're beautiful. You see them all over Instagram. Um, and I see flowers and then babies and puppies babies and puppies are the key god gave us babies and puppies to be thankful for and give us joy fantastic thank you so much vanessa that's really really (laughs) amazing thank you that was really really helpful uh i think it's been great over the last few weeks just hearing what different people who are part of Rev have found helpful in their lives in those different areas. And I've just found every single interview learned something new, something different. Um, so thank you for all of those who were involved in, in them. It's been really, really helpful. And I trust it's helped all of us uh, in terms of just thinking through, oh, practically, what kind of things have people found helpful that we can, we can do? But um, that, Vanessa, in terms of the fight for joy, really fighting for joy, I think that's, she's got habits there that she's built in her life um some perhaps intentionally some perhaps that have just kind of happened over time but those help her to become joyful as a result um and i think a a good way of starting really is to think what is what is the purpose that human beings were made for okay if we can answer that question that kind of that's kind of a big thing what is the purpose of life so nothing too small to answer in the space of 30 minutes but there's, for those of you who, anyone heard of the Westminster Short Catechism? <laughs> yes, of course, Andy Cattulli would know, and Aisha does as well. The Westminster Short Catechism is basically, I think it's the, the Church of England, I think, put it together, and it's a series of short questions and short answers to help people who are kind of new to the faith. And the first of those questions is, what is the chief end of man? Which is kind of an old English way of saying, what is the purpose of life? And the answer that they give, which I think is true, is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's basically the purpose of life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now notice that was purpose, singular, and we've given two things. Glorify God, enjoy him forever. That surely should be purposes. But actually, I think that's just an old English way of saying 
The purpose of life is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And perhaps a better... Some of you might be more familiar with this quote, a guy called John Piper, who's kind of taken that and has decided, how do I make that kind of a little bit of a neat phrase for, in, a, in a kind of modern context? And he says, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Anyone heard that quote before? Okay, what he means there is God will look far, far greater when you are delighted and joyful in him than he will look if you are doing all the stuff to help him but doing it begrudgingly. So... I suppose a little bit like, um, and Nick this illustration, probably off John Piper, recycled by a few people in the process, but a husband and a wife. Okay, So if I, if I have a date with my wife, uh, with Bex, who's, who's there, and, um, and I say, you know what, it, this, I, I love doing this. There's, there's nothing I'd rather be doing than spending time with you. At that point, she's unlikely to look at me and say, that is so selfish of you. <laughs> That is so selfish. You're only thinking about what makes you happy. She's not going to say that because she realizes that actually me delighting in her is actually going to glorify and honor her much more than if I just said, it's my duty as a husband, really. Um, that, that, that's ultimately why I'm doing it. That, you see, that's kind of, we kind of intuitively know that the more we delight in something, the better it makes it look. And I think a lot of Christians have a sneaking suspicion that God's will for your life is to make you miserable. I think my grandma has this, and I have to fight very carefully to make sure that I don't buy into this. God's will for my life is for me to be as miserable as possible. And that's kind of, that's, we kind of call it the spirit of grandma. And every time I complain to my parents, I say, I think I've just, I, kind of, I just get the sense that God doesn't want me happy. And dad, dad says, we're just going to cast out the spirit of grandma. She won't listen to the podcast. So I feel okay saying this. But I think, actually, that's kind of a funny example. And, and I, I know she does, she does know kind of deep down that God wants joy for us. But I think a lot of Christians operate with that kind of idea. They're like, actually, God's purpose for my life is for me to grumpily and begrudgingly serve him and to not get any kind of joy whatsoever. And actually, what I want us, what I want us to say is, actually, God's ultimate purpose for our lives is that we glorify him by enjoying him. Because that makes him look far greater than when we glorify him begrudgingly or in a kind of slightly grumpy way. Actually, Steph said many times, he said, we're creatures of desire. Anyone heard him say that before? Okay, yeah. He says, we are creatures of desire because we ultimately do what we want to do. And even if we end up justifying it in our minds, it's because we've justified it in a way that ultimately is something we want to do. And I think God's wired us like that. And so actually, when we look at something and say, I want that, that's a very normal human, human thing to do and to make, to make decisions out of what we want. And so actually the problem of the world and the problem of us as Christians when we are not finding fulfillment in God and so on isn't that we are looking for our happiness too much. It's not that we're prioritizing our happiness too much. It's that we're settling for joy that isn't big enough. That we're settling for some, a joy that is just superficial and too kind of low. That's what the whole world does. They say, I'm going to do this because I want to. And you're kind of looking at it. And from a Christian point of view, you can say, you're heading for a train wreck. The reason they're doing that is because they're prioritizing too low a joy. You cannot actually, I don't think, you cannot put your own joy too highly, provided that the direction of that joy is correct. Because the more you delight in God, the more you will glorify him. Anyway, enough kind of introduction. I think you guys get the point. The more we delight in God, the more he looks is going to be glorified. So let's look a little bit at the, the Bible now to, to find out, okay, what does rejoicing and being joyful in God and being consistent in joy look like? And we're going to look at Psalm 16 today, which um, 
I kind of knew Psalm 16, but kind of stumbled across it whilst preparing um, for, this, for this sermon. I thought, it's such an amazing psalm. And so we're gonna, um, I'm going to read it out. And if you want to follow along in your Bibles, that's, that's great. If you want to read it off the screen, that's fantastic. But it's just such a brilliant psalm written by King David. And I think you read it and you find here is someone who has understood the value of delighting in God as opposed to other stuff. So we're going to read it together. So it says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the grave. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Kind of get the impression that being joyful in God is a thing that David has learned. And that's kind of just become part of his life. And that's what we're, we're aiming for, ultimately. I think Christians should be, it might sound cliche, but Christians should be the happiest people in the world. I genuinely mean that. I don't mean that in a kind of like, we should all be happy clappy in a kind of caricatured way. But we should actually be people that others look at and say, there is something joyful about you. I don't get, how are you constantly seeming, like regardless of circumstances, there seems to be something that is making you joyful. That's actually what, Christian life should be like, which I think is a pretty good aim for life, really, because that's actually what most people want. They want happiness in life. And actually what we find out is in the gospel and, it, and through Jesus, actually we find that following Jesus leads to our ultimate and most deep and most profound happiness. But joy is not necessarily something that just comes automatically. Yeah, it's not something that you can just kind of sit there and think, I'm just going to wait until I feel, feel joyful. And if you read the Psalms, you will realize that that's the case. This one was a particularly joyful one because I imagine David was feeling particularly joyful and happy at the time he wrote it. There are other Psalms that will start far more with, why are you so downcast on my soul? And by the end of the Psalm, David's happy and rejoicing again. But he realizes, I need to fight for my joy. You read Paul and he is constantly fighting for the joy of the churches that he's planting. Imagine that, being you're kind of like Apostle Paul. What are you fighting for, Paul? And he says, I am fighting for the joy of the churches that I'm serving. Because when they're happy in God, when they're joyful in God, I know that they are going to be doing, making the right decisions. I know that they are going to be doing the right thing. So if my churches, the church that I'm planting, are happy in God, I'm going to be a happy man. It's something we very often need to fight for and develop as a lifestyle. And so we're going to learn a few, I suppose, a few lessons from this psalm about what does joy look like in the Christian life. And uh, the first thing to say, really, before we actually get anywhere, is that Jesus himself lived this psalm. In fact, there, the, there is a, a, a particular verse in this psalm, so verse 10, which is explicitly fulfilled in the New Testament in Acts 2, where Peter's preaching and he says, this was essentially fulfilled in Jesus. But you read the whole thing and you think, 
This is kind of a description of what Jesus is like. I put the Lord always before me. I rejoice in him. My delight is to serve him. And you won't abandon my soul to the grave. You make known to me the path of life. So as we're reading this, we've got to remember this is ultimately something we can look at and see Jesus in it. We see Jesus almost as the kind of the, the person that this psalm was written for. I think David's writing it because he's experiencing it, but Jesus fully experienced joy and happiness in God. And if you want to find the happiest person who has ever existed, you need no, look no further than Jesus. And that might seem a bit counterintuitive with a lot of the stuff that went on in his life, but we're going to look at that as we go through it. So, but we have to remember that as we're going through this, Jesus lived this psalm out. He is the one who is most fully and truly described by this psalm. And if we go into it thinking, oh, okay, this is just a self-help for my happiness, we will go terribly wrong. If we go into it thinking, Jesus lived this out, I'm going to look to what Jesus did, I'm going to put my trust in him, I'm going to put my joy in him, we will go well at that point. So lesson number one would be that true joy is found in God and not in circumstances. So if we look at a few verses from here, so verse two, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Really? David doesn't have anything good apart from God. When you read the accounts of him being a king, he seems to have a pretty nice palace. Seems to have a lot of people who actually seem to like him quite a lot. He had difficult times in his life, definitely. But you think, no good? And David's understood my joy has to ultimately come from God, not circumstances. Verse eight also says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I won't be shaken. When circumstances move, I've set God at my right hand. He's my ultimate joy. He's my ultimate happiness. The final verse, which I think is amazing. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. There might be partial joy in certain things, which to be honest, are just are gifts from God anyway. But in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. True joy is found in God and not in circumstances. And that's the reason the Bible can, can, can command us to be joyful. Okay, Philippians 4.4, a very well-known verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Can you imagine Paul telling you that when you're feeling particularly grumpy? Probably not the thing you want to hear. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I mean, he probably didn't say it in that tone of voice, to be fair. But the reason Paul can command the churches that he's writing to, to rejoice in the Lord, is because he knows if I tell them to rejoice in the Lord, they have something to rejoice in. If they're rejoicing in circumstances, they might have something to rejoice in or they might not. If they rejoice in the Lord, they will always have something to rejoice in. If we are rejoicing in God and in the gospel and in what he's done and in who he is and how awesome he is, how powerful he is, how gracious he is, the stuff we were singing about this morning, if that's where we rejoice, then I can stand here and almost command us and say, we have to rejoice in the Lord. You can command someone to rejoice in something that never changes, if that's a good thing. You can't command someone to just be joyful in the abstract or to be joyful in situations. It's a little bit like if you're... Think of kind of like a a plank of wood floating around on the ocean. If the ocean's calm and you're holding the plank, maybe a bodyboard might be better because if you're on a plank, it suggests you've just had a kind of, (laughs) you're not in a good place. But if you're just kind of lounging around on a bodyboard and imagine you don't like big waves, just lounging around, everything's fine. At that point, you can kind of put your confidence on that bodyboard. As soon as a storm heads your way, that is not going to be a very good thing to be putting your weight on anymore. And joy in circumstances is a bit like that. 
It's like saying, yeah, when everything's fine, it's really easy to be joyful. When everything falls apart, it's a little bit like you're getting tossed around by the waves on top of this little tiny kind of polystyrene thing. That's not going to be sufficient. Whereas joy in God is much more like being in a lighthouse in the middle of a storm. You can have as many waves as you want crashing up against it. It's not going to move. It's got a firm foundation. And joy in God is like that. It's a joy that doesn't leave. It doesn't move. It doesn't go away. And that's why I think Paul feels confident that he can command people to be joyful in God. It's because he knows God doesn't change. God is always good. The gospel is always true. Therefore, we can rejoice in it. And actually, there are people in this church who model that. And I'm going to end up getting emotional at this point, but you probably know some of the people that I'm talking about. People who are going through very difficult health problems, very difficult family problems, but yet they are always so happy and not in a caricatured way. Not the kind of like, oh yeah, no, everything's fine. They wouldn't say that. But they are joyful, happy people in God. And they have learned what it is to say, I'm going to stay in the lighthouse in this storm. I'm going to look at Jesus. I'm not going to go around on that little dinghy in the middle of, in the, middle of the ocean because that's not going to satisfy. At the moment, with this particular life situation that's come my way, I am not going to be able to be joyful in those circumstances. But I can be joyful in God. And I think that's, that's what, so one thing I want to... There's a kind of two-pronged thing I want to nail, um, nail today, which is one of them is... Joy and, ha- joy and happiness is not just this deep down kind of thing that is so hidden that no one ever notices it. You sometimes get that. People say, well, joy is not the same thing as happiness. Actually, two things are kind of just used interchangeably. There is something about joy that does actually affect the way that you act. But at the same time, the other problem is to say we're not going to settle for superficial happiness. The problem isn't so much happiness. The problem is what are you happy in? We want to be people who are visibly joyful And at times that will be through tears. I have seen people who have been looking joyful in God through the hardest situations of life. And it's a privilege to see that. Because you're thinking, these are people who are trusting God and joyful in him in the midst of the toughest times. And I can see it. It's not not kind of a deep down hidden joy where they're like, well, actually, it's just so far down that no one knows that it's there. But it's not a kind of superficial kind of, yeah, everything's fine. We don't want the everything's fine joy. We want the joy that says, come highs, come lows, come storms, come everything. My joy in God rests secure because it's in him. That's what we want. And actually, Jesus models that. Jesus models that perfectly. Because if you look at Jesus' life, it was a little bit of a roller coaster of a ride. But yet, Jesus was constantly joyful in God. Jesus constantly said, "I, I thank you, Father, that you have revealed these things to little children and hidden them from the wise. He, he, it says at that point, in that passage, it says his spirit rejoiced in the Lord. He's constantly rejoicing. He's thanking God for stuff. He's rejoicing in God. He's got this all-satisfying relationship with the Father, which he's had from eternity past. He has spent the whole of eternity past delighting in the Father, and the Father delighting in him, and in the Spirit, and this, the, the Trinity delighting constantly for the whole of eternity past, and he maintains that through his earthly life. He says, I delight in the Lord. He's not delighting in circumstances. You can't delight in in a lot of the circumstances Jesus went through. You can't really delight in being crucified. You can't really delight in being mocked and flogged. But Jesus delighted in God. Jesus delighted in his Father. And that was actually the reason he was able to do so many of these things. So Jesus' joy was like the lighthouse. It was not like the little dinghy or the little bodyboard floating around in the ocean. So that's the first thing. And I think... 
to a certain extent, probably the most important is joy, true joy is found in God and not in circumstances. So when I'm standing here and saying, we want to be consistent in joy, what we are not looking for is a church of people who are constantly saying, everything's fine. What we're looking for is a church of people, many of whom at various points in their life will say, everything's fine and praise God for it, but I'm focusing on him. And many of whom will be going through very difficult times saying, actually, my life feels like it's falling apart, but my joy hasn't been affected because it's in him, not in my circumstances. And that takes habits. That actually does take hard work. It's God's grace enables us to do it. His Holy Spirit enables us to do it. But it does take consistent habit of saying, I'm not going to let this circumstance rock my joy in God because it can't touch it. It can't touch. If my joy is founded in him, it cannot touch It cannot touch me at that point. So that's the first thing we learn. I think a second thing that we can learn is that joy in God fights off sin and idolatry. So verse 4, David says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. What David's realized, probably through a lot of experience and watching people who have been participating in idolatrous worship, which at that time would have looked quite literally like offering sacrifices to a statue, He's looking at it and thinking, their sorrows are going to multiply. Through experience, I've learned their joy is not going to be there. And actually, joy in God fights off sin and idolatry. Because David has seen, my joy is completely in God. He actually looks at false worship. He looks at sin and idolatry and looks at it and thinks, there's no attraction. I, I don't feel the attraction of that because I've seen what joy is like in God. Why would I look for joy elsewhere? Why would I look for joy in that? And that's actually, when we give into sin, when we give into idolatry, actually what's going on, one way of looking at it is to, is to think that's the point where our joy in God has been put to the side. I think I can feel confident saying this. If we were fully and completely, permanently satisfied in God, I don't think we would ever sin. And I, I, I believe that is true. I think if you are genuinely delighting in God, to the extent which obviously we will in new creation, you will never sin because you will see the ultimate joy and you will see the joys of sin for what they actually truly are. And David's seen that. In this particular psalm, he's looking at it thinking, I've seen the sorrow that comes their way. I've seen the fact that it doesn't deliver. It doesn't actually, doesn't actually deliver at all. It's not fulfilling. Whereas in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Think of, it's a, horrible um, example in a sense, but a husband who commits adultery is very unlikely to be fully delighting in his wife at that point. If he was fully satisfied and fully delighting in his wife the way that he should be, he would not end up going to try and find another joy elsewhere and not trying to find a superficial joy that does not satisfy in the long term and deep down in the same way that he would if he was delighting in his wife. And I think the same is true with sin and idolatry. If we are truly delighting in God's the pleasures of sin, in inverted commas, will suddenly just look less and less and less attractive. And that doesn't mean temptation goes away, but it does mean that, you, that there's a kind of a sense that you're growing more and more satisfied in God and less and less finding sin and idolatry appealing. The problem with the world, as I said, as I said earlier, isn't that people value their happiness too much. And the reason we fall into sin and idolatry isn't that we value our own happiness and our own joy too much. The reason we do that is because we actually value it too little. We settle for something too superficial, too 
unsubstantial, and then we end up falling into that. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis that some of you may have heard, which I I just think is excellent on this. Um, C.S. Lewis is really good at illustrating certain things in the Christian life. And if we could have the quote up, actually... He says, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. So basically, if modern people think, no, actually, pursuing happiness is not a good thing. He said, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics, basically non-Christian philosophers, and is no part of the Christian faith. The idea that pursuing happiness is not a part of the Christian faith is rubbish. He says, "That, that is not a Christian idea. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased." I think that's such a brilliant way of phrasing it. So a little bit like, so you've got this, kind of, this kid who's making mud pies in the mud in a slum, and he's very happy to do that because he's never heard of what it is to have a holiday by the sea where you can make a sandcastle. When we fall into idolatry and when we fall into sin, we're like that kid who's making mud pies in a slum, saying, I'm happy with this, this is great, because he's forgotten what it's like to have a holiday by the sea. When we fall into sin, we have forgotten what true joy in God is like. It's a way of looking at it. And so, are we too easily pleased? That would be my challenge to all of us and me included. Are we too easily pleased sometimes? Are we happy to settle for something too small, too kind of surface level? So, when... If you're someone who... So, if if you're someone who struggles with you think, you know what, internet pornography gets me... Fight for your joy in God. Fight for your joy in God. If you're somebody who thinks, you know what, it's, it's gambling. For me, it's when, when I, I just fall into that so, so easily, fight for your joy in God. Because if you are satisfied in him, you will not click that button. If you are satisfied in him, you will not go on that gambling website. If you are satisfied in him, you will not need that extra drink. If you are satisfied in him, you will not cheat on your wife. If you're you're satisfied in him, you will not end up backbiting and and gossiping. If you're satisfied in him, that just will have no appeal. And so my plea to us today is to grab hold of God and say, help me, Father, to delight in you. Help me to delight in Jesus. Help me to delight in him ultimately. Because when I delight in him, the temptation just, it's not as strong. It just doesn't move me anymore at that point so that's the second thing joy in god fights off sin and idolatry and jesus did that jesus fought off sin and idolatry with the fact that his delight was in god so people were coming up coming up to him and suggesting various things and he said my my food is to do the will of god Hey, food is a kind of very joy-filled thing. When you eat and you're hungry, you tend to be quite happy afterwards. Jesus is saying, my food, the thing that sustains me is to do what God wants. That's my joy. That's what I want ultimately. And Hebrews 1 says, you, speaking of Jesus, you loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above all your companions. The writer to the Hebrews is looking at Jesus and saying he loved righteousness, he hated wickedness, and there was joy that drove him in the midst of that. Joy in God fights off sin, fights off idolatry. 
And so, as I was saying earlier, if we were a church that were to pursue and fight for joy in God, we would be a church that is growing in holiness, growing in loving others, growing in all of the things, actually, that we've been looking at in this series. If we, if we become a church that fights for joy in the hardest of circumstances, the other things kind of just na- almost naturally fall in place. And then finally, joy in God looks to our future hope. So the last few verses of that psalm, says, verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is another word for the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. In this psalm, David is looking at the fact he knows that there is a future hope. He knows God will not abandon his soul in the grave. He's not just going to die and cease to exist, and that's it. He's looking and he's saying, there's something that's coming. There's something more that's coming, and I know you're not just going to leave me in the grave forever. When I die, it's not just going to be a moment of being buried and rotting, and that's it. And this is actually the point where the New Testament speaks of this psalm being explicitly fulfilled in Jesus. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says... David spoke in this psalm and he said, you will not abandon my soul to the grave or yet let your Holy One see corruption. And he says, fellow Jews, David's grave is amongst us. We still have it to this day. But David was actually prophesying of the Messiah who would come, who would not be left in the grave, but who instead would rise from the dead. Jesus embodies this psalm and he delights in God because he says, I know I'm going to the cross I'm going to the cross. I am terrified of it. Jesus was terrified of the cross, not just the physical suffering, but the fact that he would be separated from his father and endure the wrath of God for the whole of sin to the point where he falls to the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane. He can't remain standing. But yet the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. It says, I, the shame that comes with the cross is of no, no significance to me because resurrection is coming. I am going to be raised on the third day and I'm going to be exalted to the right hand of the Father for that joy set before me, the fact that I will reign and my church will be gathered from all the corners of the world and I will get to marry my bride at the end, at the end of time. That joy led him to the cross. That joy led him to the deepest, darkest suffering and Jesus fully embodies this psalm and we get to know that there is a future hope because of that. Because of his joy, which scorned the shame of the cross and went through with the resurrection, we trust that there is a future resurrection coming for us, which can be where our joy comes from. That we don't rejoice in the present. That we rejoice in God and we rejoice in God and what he's going to do when he raises us from the dead on the final day and the whole of creation is restored. Amazing illustration that the, the New Testament uses really of this, of the present age, is it's a little bit like the pains of childbirth, the pains of labour. Actually, you, going into labour is a painful thing, from what I've heard of it. <laughs> and remove, think 2,000 years back with no healthcare, no epidurals, it is an exceptionally painful thing. But you go through it because of the joy of new life. There's, there's, that, there's that amazing kind of moment, and I checked with Bex before the service just to know if it was medically true, where the, you're kind of like, you've, you've got this woman who's in labour who is suffering, and you watch Casualty or whatever programme it is, and there's this suffering, you can hear this, this screaming and panting and this, this tiredness, and then suddenly that stops, and then there's a new cry. New life has come out, and that's exactly what's going to happen with the world. 
This age is filled with death and suffering and persecution and problems and pain. And it's like, it's like a woman in childbirth going, oh, when's it going to come? When's it going to come? This is so painful. And suddenly there will be a day where the skies are opened and it's finished. And new birth arrives and we get raised from the dead. Christ returns. And so what I'd like us to do is I want us to finish by, um, by celebrating God. Do we actually, you know what, I've, I've changed my mind again. Do we have something a little bit more upbeat? Um, I always ask for kind of like relatively low beat songs so we can kind of go into, I don't know, relatively kind of serious response. But actually, I, I, feel, like, I feel like what I want to do is I want us to read out Romans 8, 18, 25, which kind of, again, uses that childbirth illustration of where we're going. And I want us to kind of look at what God's done and rejoice in what he's done and, and what's happening. And we're going to take communion together and feel, feel free to do that in your own time. Do it in a joyful way, obviously. Um, and we're going to read Romans 8, verses 18 to 25 out. And the Apostle Paul writes this, who knows a lot about suffering, by the way, and he also knows a lot about joy. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation's on the edge of its seat waiting. There's a day coming. I know you just imagine the trees and the rivers and the animals, everything kind of on the edge of their seat thinking, a day is coming where the people who are God's children are going to be revealed fully for who they are. And creation's on the edge of its seat waiting for that. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The whole creation and we ourselves in this present time are groaning and going, this is tough sometimes, this is difficult sometimes, this is painful this is, this is too much sometimes, it feels like. But those are groans of childbirth where we know that new life is coming. And we groan with the whole of creation waiting for that day where Christ returns and the whole of creation is restored and our bodies are redeemed. Where there will be no pain. There will be no sickness. There will be no kind of limitation in terms of just, that, just bad stuff that plagues our bodies at the moment and plagues this world. For in this hope we were saved, verse 24. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Because if it was already here, we wouldn't hope for it. We wouldn't be looking to the future. It's not here yet, but it's coming. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, what we do not see has not yet arrived, but we hope for it. And I don't mean hope in the English way. I don't mean, oh, I hope I get a present. I mean, we know this is coming because Christ has been raised from the dead and we wait for it with patience. And I might add on to that, it's not inspired scripture, but I'm with joy. We wait for it with patience and with joy. And so let's stand together. Let's praise God as we take bread and wine together, as we sing together. And remember the weight of glory that's in front of us and ahead of us. And let's, yeah, let's praise God together.